welcome to Cloud9 Fin, a podcast on all things leveraged finance. We follow corporate debt from issuance to redemption, credits from performing to distressed, and everything in between. I'm Jennifer Munnings, and today I'm delighted to be sitting down with Rupert Davies, a sustainable finance professional with over eight years of experience. Thank you so much for joining me today, Rupert. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Awesome. Let's jump into it. So Bloomberg recently released results from a mostly U.S.-based survey it conducted on ESG sentiments, which found that almost 70% of the people surveyed who are not directly involved in ESG think of it as nothing more than a passing fad. And only 18% of those engaged expect ESG to become more critical in business, down from 25% last year. How do you think asset managers are dealing with ESG? Do you think that ESG will ever become fully integrated into credit analysis? Yeah, I think the the interesting part of that question is a U.S. focused survey. I, th- I think you know if it was global with a bit more European representation, I think you know would see um, maybe slightly more favorable numbers on on the ESG side. Um, but yeah, I, I think you know if you look at um, you know what's happening in particularly in the U.S. is that things are getting very very political, uh, which puts an additional kind of scrutiny on on asset managers. Um, so the reactions you're seeing across the industry is either you're doubling down and committing more on the sustainable investment sides or you're simply going through an exercise of green hushing, where you're actually removing terms like ESG. We've seen this on the corporate side. We're seeing this with banks um, as well. So the, the number of times ESG is now mentioned in earnings calls has decreased versus in the last kind of previous years. So I, I think you know people are just trying to navigate, um, I think, a, a very volatile political environment. Um, the issue you have within the US, if you have very influential figures um, who are able to um, kind of put out um, anti-ESG slogans as part of their political campaigns of florida and and other places so i I think it's it's becoming more of a more of a branding issue than the actual principles of what esg is and i think there's now needs to be quite a strong educational process of telling people well esg is is risk management it's not about um you know trying to get companies to um be better it's about getting them to do better um and i I think that's something to be communicated across yeah i think with the on, on the asset management side though it's, um, you know, I've worked with uh, teams in the US who have to adjust uh, the ESG messaging in their pitch decks based on who they're talking to. So they'll, they'll either have the term ESG or it just gets replaced with material uh, non-financial factors. So it is ESG, but without calling it ESG. So it's, it's interesting how, how that's playing out. And obviously with Europe, we have SFDR. So it's, it's the, the US, the, the EU is it's a very different um, kind of spectrum. And I think, you know, in terms of, of, of credit, um, ESG risks, whether you're looking at equity or credit are the same. Um, it's simply how you kind of address those. So through equities, you can do shareholder resolutions and voting um, and everything else. Uh, you can short with with credit. It, it's, it's, it's a little bit more difficult because the bonds have certain durations. You either hold on to them or you, or, or you don't. Uh, with traditional credit analysts, we, we see you know, ESG does have a correlation with spreads. It does narrow them. It does completely reduce default risk, but it's not a perfect correlation. A AAA credit rating does not necessarily equate to a AAA ESG rating. So you're going to have to really kind of determine what are the underlying factors for, for that company. And it is, again, all about materiality. Um, the issue with ESG is there are so many market and idiosyncratic factors at play. So just simply having a good ESG company doesn't doesn't mean you're, you're, you're completely safe from all the other factors. I think, you know, the last couple of years, we've kind of seen how big a force is at play actually, you know, the ESG companies um, are, are vulnerable to the same kind of impacts as as, as kind of non-ESG uh, uh, companies. Um, with credit, it's interesting though, because 
sustainable finance within green bonds, uh, sustainable utility loans is a very, very rapidly growing area. And I think that's where you'll see a, a much deeper level of ESG integration on, on the credit side versus traditional credit analysis. So where traditional credit analysis, ESG is just one part of the story, green bonds and everything else, it has a much high, more high conviction and a, and a deeper kind of integration piece. And I think that's where you'll see the, the real kind of growth up everywhere from the co corporate up to the sovereign side. Um, that's very interesting. You spoke a little bit about green hushing that you experienced while you worked in the U.S. Uh, do you think the U.S. is a significant laggard in terms of ESG compared to Europe? What's your take on the state of ESG over there? Yeah, I mean, it's it's really interesting. Obviously, Europe leads the way and it has done for a, a long time. And I, I don't suspect that will change. Um, Pre-SFDR, if you looked at ESG integrated assets, Europe's held the lion's share. Um, I think if you look at growth, um, the U.S. is, is rapidly catching up. Um, the problem is you, you look at the headlines, and it's, for, it's quite hard to see that at times, especially the way in which the U.S. is set up. So you obviously have things like the IRA uh, Act, which I think is an amazing piece of legislation. Um, but at the state levels, you're seeing very, very different pictures, particularly in um, Texas, Florida, and, and kind of the other kind of deep red states. Um but saying that, Texas has outstripped California in terms of renewable growth. Um, it's out in terms of solar and wind. Um, it, it's so, but they're not doing this as part of uh, what you'd call the ESG agenda. They're doing it because they need affordable clean energy to tackle things like the blackouts. Um, the oil and gas sector within Texas is very energy intensive. It puts a huge strain on the infrastructure. So for them, it's about utilizing cheap energy to um, improve their infrastructure. They're not doing it for the good of the world. So you kind of have to look at it through through different lenses. Um, but yeah, no, the interest, the, the US, it's, it's an interesting place. I think, you know, when you start hearing um, that insurers are no longer offering wildfire insurance in California or hurricane and flood insurance in, in Florida, you know, you really have to sit up and pay attention and be like, okay, what what is it? I, I think a lot of it is because the, the, the term ESG gets marked with things like woke and it, again, it becomes it becomes political and it's all now about point scoring. So if you look at the Republican uh, campaigns, very focused on, on ESG bashing um, because they know that's they can kind of drum up support on that. But, is it, but it's interesting. I think you do, you do have to look at it at a state-by-state -state factor. Not every red state's anti-ESG and not every blue state's pro-ESG. So um, I think you know, at a federal level, I think that the Biden administration has been a, has been a great ally for, for ESG. Um, in that sense, I think, you know, the IRA is an incredible piece of legislation. I know it's being looked at to have similar um, kind of frameworks in, in Europe and the UK. And the IRA legislation for our listeners who may not know the... Sorry, yes. <laughs> <laughs> the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act um, that Biden passed recently. Um, and then moving on to a conversation that's quite a hot topic in, in the ESG world, data. So data for metrics like carbon emissions are better than others in terms of standardization, but there's still a significant difference between the ways companies, for example, report their data um, and using different methodologies. This makes it difficult to assess impact. In addition, a study of sustainable funds found that almost 70% have some exposure to oil and gas. So given your history in impact investing, do you think the only real way to make a difference is by investing in projects or is ESG integration still a part of the big picture? Yeah, I definitely say ESG is part of the big, the big picture. I, th I think ESG is now basically step one when assessing a company or an asset, right? What are the, the environmental social risks associated with, with this particular product? Um, 
you, know, you do have to look at the the materiality factors on that. Um, not every company will face the same risks, even if it's in the same in industry, location-wise, regulation. You know, there are all sorts of different things at play. So, you know, it's, it's really part of that deep risk kind of analysis. If you're not looking at these factors, are you really having your fiduciary duty um, to to your clients? You know, I, I I didn't think so. So, kind of going beyond that and actually looking at the products and solutions that the companies are actually doing and how does that kind of impact the wider society, you know, whether it's social enterprises or, or environmental focused ones. I think that's where sustainable investing has gone a lot more interesting, um, particularly around, I know, clean energy is obviously the very big one, but EVs, hydrogen. Uh, we saw um, a maiden voyage uh, this week of a shipping container using sails. Like who'd have thought that wind is now still relevant at sea? So, you know, there's all sorts of amazing kind of innovation out there. And I think that's where you know, if you're looking for for returns um, as well, I think you know that's where you can kind of be looking. ESG is is fundamentally risk. Um, Any you know, you can oil, oil and gas companies can manage these risks, but that doesn't necessarily make an oil and gas company better. Um, we saw in the S and P 500, Tesla getting replaced by by Exxon, and I think that really kind of showed the misunderstanding of what ESG is. It's is you know, it, it is about the triple bottom line. Sustainable investing goes that really crucial one step further. And that's where you start to run into more issues with data. I think, you know, if, if you're more likely to die of old age um, than to find, you know, the perfect data set, you know, it, it doesn't exist. So you really have to use what you've got. Um, and there are certain points, you know, things like emissions that are a little bit more standardized. There's a lot of frameworks, things like the TCFD that kind of really kind of helped and boost that. But there's a lot of other metrics out there that um, you just don't get necessarily get the same consistency, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't act on that. You know, there, there are a lot of ways that you can fill the gaps through estimation models and, and, and everything else. So, um, yeah, it just, just requires you need to be a little bit more creative on, on some of that side. Yeah, I definitely agree. We often find companies reporting um, a multitude of different metrics, but you have to make it work, I guess. There's there's only so much that you can do if companies aren't reporting, right? I think so, yeah. You just, you, kind of have, you just have to draw your line in the sand and be like, this is my thesis. This is yeah. what I do. And as long as your methodologies are very transparent, um, and robust, you know, you can you can face up to the criticisms, and I think you know this is why ESG ratings providers are now being looked at by regulators because beyond the the headline ratings, it's very difficult to to always see how they necessarily build those estimation models, and the lack of correlation pre between the providers is an issue. I don't think the regulation will address that, but certainly, um, you know, I think especially for retail investors who aren't as kind of in 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 the know as as institutional, it's really about understanding how are these built up. If there are gaps, what do they do to fill them? Like, how does that work? And then, then you can kind of make up your own mind on on, on where you see that um, within your own kind of um, integration process. Yeah, exactly. Um, so speaking of regulation, the SFDR was championed as the answer to a lot of the challenges sustainable investing in Europe faced. But as indicated by the massive amount of Article 9 fund downgrades, it seemed to only cause more confusion. Do you think the SFDR can still achieve its primary goal to encourage investment in green products and weed out greenwashing, or has it lost its credibility? So at the risk of saying something a little bit controversial, SFDR has been the bane of my life for the last two years. I, th I think a lot of other asset managers will, will feel this, not because we don't think the regulation is needed. I think the, the I, th I think is greatly needed. I think, you know, kudos to the European Commission for doing this first, but they got a lot wrong. Um, making the asset managers report ahead of the corporates, for example, I don't, I don't necessarily see the, um, the the logic behind that. If we're being held accountable on what we invested, well, we guess where we get the data from? It's from the companies. And if they're not being mandated to report on that, then 
you know, I think I think it's a, a little bit unfair that we got we got we got targeted first. And I think you know the other criticism with with SFDR is the the Article Eight, Article Nine categories. Article Eight is incredibly broad. You can have funds that simply do ESG integration and exclude a couple of sectors will sit in the same uh, bucket as a thematic ESG fund or so the thematic sustainable fund. Um, there's a much higher conviction uh, integration process, a much more thoughtful stewardship process. And you can see it in the way in which the portfolio managers uh, talk about this and, and the, the supporting materials, but they don't quite meet that level to go above for an Article 9. Obviously, we saw the huge uh, series of downgrades last year. So markets are trying to, trying to correct this. So there's now the term an Article 8 plus, which for the again so it's effectively taking little elements of, of article 9 and the mifids uh, sustainable preferences and applying them to an article 8 fund to basically help weed out the funds that that just do a little bit of esg but make the article 8 and actually those that are trying to do that that that, that little a little bit more I, I think the 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 biggest downfall of sfdr was um open end allowing um um investment investment managers and, and market players to define their own sustainable investment, right? What does that mean? I think that that really opens people up to greenwashing. And um, I think maybe that's where the commission could have stepped up and been a little bit more hardline and said, this counts as sustainable. This does not count as sustainable. Because um, yeah, like, like, like you said in the previous question, you'll, you'll start seeing fossil fuels and, and other things in sustainable funds that probably shouldn't be there. But because the rationale is being allowed and the narrative is being allowed to be created by the product manufacturers, that kind of gives it an okay. So it's really about, again, like I said, your own kind of line in the sand and where you cross. But, you know, if you, if you look at what the SEC and the S and then the UK are doing um, in terms of their regulation, they've definitely taken aspects off it. Um, I think the big difference is they're now looking at a label-based um, set of regulation, whereas SFGR is a disclosure-based regulation that is being used as a label, you um, uh, use as a label, which is not what it's intended for. And I think you know that will lead to um, additional greenwash greenwashing risk, and certainly a lot of commercial pressure to um, kind of push funds into certain categories that that maybe they shouldn't be um, as well. And I think it's that is something I've, I've definitely kind of witnessed throughout my career. Um, it's interesting that you spoke about the way that markets are trying to sort of correct and readjust for the uh, gaps in the SFDR. Um, it's Stuart Kirk, the former global head of responsible investing at HSBC, in a controversial speak, a speech a while back, said to a group of investors that they need not consider climate change, arguing that the risks of climate change were being overstated by policymakers. While the, the speech received a lot of pushback, some advisors found his comments affirming. What is your impression on his comments? Why do you think some advisors resonated with his sentiments? I, I think, you know, it, it, it's like, it's like with most things, I think people overreact to bad news and underreact to good news. And I think that that's the same with, with the climate story. Like, yes, there is a climate emergency and we, we do have to act now to reduce emissions and protect biodiversity and have kind of more nature positive approaches. But I, I get his point that if we don't do this today, the world's not going to end tomorrow. But that doesn't mean that it's not relevant. I mean, this is a, what's the, you know, the, 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 the the frog in the pot of water that slowly boils is only too late until you realize and i I think maybe he kind of oversimplified a very complicated uh, issue I, I definitely think the policymakers have gotten parts right but they've also got you know, a lot of parts wrong um and i think it's really about trying to roll out what's practical i think you know the ukraine situation has been a bit of prime example where 
okay, we're not ready to completely commit to 100% renewable infrastructure. It's not there yet, but it's definitely spurred on um, huge amounts of investment. Um, I think 358 billion or something this year. Um, I saw a, a figure from Bloomberg. So it's definitely been a catalyst. But yeah, I mean, it, it, the world will not end tomorrow if we simply stop emitting today. At that, that point, I do understand. But I, I think you have to take a much longer view term over it. You know, the impacts will will continue for decades and generations. So um, yeah, it's really crucial. I think the other part of his speech where he says uh, was that humanity will just simply adapt. We're very good at it. Okay, great. But that adaptation is also not equal. The, the global south, which is impacted more um, by the physical impacts of climate change, are less able to adapt than more wealthy kind of Western nations. So there has to be a wider discussion um, on that. And that's where, you know, central banks and, and policymakers and everyone else do have to have to come to some more agreement. We saw this at the last COP. The other part of it is we talked about humanity. Well, what about things like biodiversity and, and nature? That takes a much longer time to kind of recuperate from from the impacts and in some places it, it, it can't because the the environments are no longer viable for um you know the flora and the fauna that were there before we, you know we have i've kind of seen that firsthand um where with coral, coral bleaching it takes a long time for that to come back and sometimes it doesn't so I, yeah I, I think i i get where he's coming from but i i, I don't necessarily agree with 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 all of what, what he said and there's another controversial uh, figure in the ESG world, Tarek Fancy. Um, so as someone who has worked at various asset managers over the years, but has taken a bit of a step back from the industry, do you share similar views as the former BlackRock CIO Tarek Fancy on ESG? For our listeners who might not be familiar, Tarek Fancy, since stepping down as CIO, has made news calling ESG investing a box-ticking exercise. Having now left the industry, do you share his views? Does ESG really make a difference or is it the same thing just repackaged? Yeah, I, I think you know, I think there's something to be said about, um, and this is not just within ESG, but in, you know, in, in, in all aspects of, um, of of life. I think people making a career out of being controversial are, <laughs> as well. I think there is an element of, of that. You know, he, he definitely says things that headlines pick up um, and and people kind of listen to. I, I think you know, the fact that he he was the sustainable CIO for BlackRock. I think he obviously knows what he's talking about and to some extent yes i think esg um has been treated by as a box ticking exercise historically i think that is changing there's still elements of it now and you see that where companies are now kind of getting litigated over it right there's now kind of um enforcement on, on these issues I, I think yeah there is definitely still an element of box ticking but i think that's that that is changing um and i think it's been, that's been changing for a while um you know you kind of we'd have to see you know, kind of um, some of the, um, you know, the, the the infrastructure investments, the battery technologies, um, you know, the capital being raised for for green for green kind of projects, where there are very clear KPIs on what they have to hit to get that. That's not box ticking. You know, that that really is um, holding people to account. Um, yeah, I I think is if he if he said it five ten years ago, then yeah, I'd, I'd be more inclined to kind of agree a bit more. But now I, th I think it's just it's moved so far on from from what he's talking about. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely agree. Regulation has played a significant role in, in shaping that as well. Um, switching gears a little bit to talk about nature and biodiversity related risks. So investors are increasingly being asked to pay attention to risks associated with nature loss. Following the launch of the Task Force for Nature Related Disclosures um, expected to happen in September, we expect to see more companies disclosing their risks. What is your take on the business case for biodiversity? 
Have your clients expressed interest in assessing their nature-related impacts? So I, I started out tracking elephants in South Africa. So, um, you know, my, my background's in environmental science and climate science and then biodiversity. So I'm incredibly excited to see that biodiversity is now finally getting the attention um, that kind of levels climate change. And I, I understand why climate is a more understood phenomenon. People aren't really sure how to, how to assess biodiversity, but I think, you know, everything is so interlinked, you know, in order to tackle climate change, you have to address biodiversity. You know, all these natural carbon sinks and then the Amazon, for example, you know, th those have been incredibly hard to replace. And I've seen, you know, again, going back to maybe Stuart Kirk's point about adaptation technology, well, now there's direct air capture, but you, you tell me how building more and more kind of direct air capture and everything else is better than just preserving you know, these huge Swiss rainforests. Um, and, and I think, you know, forestry investment is definitely an area that's, um, that's becoming a lot more interesting. And we've seen things like climate, um, climate bonds, blue bonds, conservation bonds, for example, as well. So it is a really interesting area. I, th I think it's really, really, again, about finding the, you know, the meaningful data points. It's simply looking at, um, things like sourcing palm oil. That's a very basic step to looking at, well, how do, in how do your, your, your kind of real assets impact the, the, the areas around them? And that is quite difficult to do from an office in London. You know, it's really about having, um, you know, some kind of uh, sense point for the ground. So things like satellites, NGOs, you know, there's a huge swathe of um, strategic partnerships you can do. Um, and for example, even something as, as, as sustainable as, as solar has an impact on the land use, right? It's always about trade-offs. Are you going to use it for agriculture? Are you going to use it for forestry and biodiversity, or are you going to use it for, for clean energy production? Um, so what you are seeing is you can do a little bit of both. So within solar fields, um, you know, there, there are kind of great partnerships um, where people have uh, things like bee, like beekeeping and uh, rewilding around the areas. Um, I've seen you know, aspects of where people sheep graze under the solar panels as well. So I think it's really about trying to not necessarily using more land, it's trying to be more uh, efficient with the land that we we do have available, um, because once you've cut down, you know these swathes of rainforest, they don't they don't come back. Um, so it's really important. Um, and you know, also speaking as a father, you know, I'd like to see my daughter be able to go out into the world and see things that I've seen that, unfortunately, I don't think they'll all be there. Um, so I think you know, as an investor, I, I have a double interest in making sure that capital is used as well as it can to preserve um these areas but yeah but, you know by and things like the tnfd i'm really excited about there are all these frameworks i think are going to be really great for the investment community to do it um but yeah i think it's really understanding how um you know how kind of how, how companies operate and where they operate and how that kind of impacts the wider space because a lot of it goes unseen um like most aspects of supply chains it's, it's difficult to trace and track yeah that's that's definitely interesting um, a few weeks ago, I was at a nature group meeting with the principal for responsible investors and several asset managers there indicated that the lack of nature related data is a key barrier to them integrating nature into their risk processes. Where climate data and targets are quite quantitative and relatively standardized, biodiversity lacks equivalent metrics. Given this barrier, do you think nature will garner investor action in the same way climate has? I think it will because I think people realize that you know, again, to my previous point that you can't address climate without addressing nature. So I think people will find a way to make, you know, to, to interconnect them. You know, 10 years ago, we didn't have anywhere near the level of climate data that we had now. And I think that's the, that's the same for where nature and, and biodiversity is. But I, you know, I do see that rapidly changing. Um, and I think, you know, people care about this, like especially kind of the younger generations. They really want 
to put their money into sustainable assets. And you know, you can see through the activism, whether it's in Montana or, or, or the protests or everything else, you know, you can't kind of get away by not doing it. So I, I think you know, there's a lot of catalysts behind um, improving that aspect. Um, but again, you know, it, it just because the data is not there today and it's not perfect, it doesn't mean that you can't not, you should not take action. Um, you just have to be more creative um, in, in, in doing it um, and then trying to find your own ways of, of filling the gaps. And, you know, like I said, you know, things like the TNFD, I think would be really, um, you know, really strategic in, in that aspect. I'm really excited about that particular framework. Yeah, I was at a ESG conference a while back and one of the speakers said, don't let perfect be the enemy of the good in terms of yeah, data metrics. So I think that um, the TNFC framework will be a big help. Um, I'm going to steal that. That is a great saying. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know who said it, but that is fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so that's all the time we've got for today. Thanks so much for taking the time to chat through this with me today, Rupert. And thanks to you, the listener, for tuning in. Please let us know if you have any feedback on today's podcast by emailing team at ninefin.com. Be sure to also check in next week to hear the latest on U.S. markets with our colleague, Will Kakersmith. And we'll be back the week after that. See you then.